And we pray that this day you would give us ears to hear your word, uh, that you would open our hearts, that you would open our minds uh, to hear your word and respond to it rightly. Amen. Uh, And we've got a picture. Wonderful. I don't know, I suspect that uh, some of you have seen this uh, pyramid before, I'm not sure, but uh, you might have heard of uh, Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Uh, That's what this is. Uh, And uh, the idea being that our most fundamental needs as human beings uh, are down the bottom there. Uh, It's not a great uh, uh, kind of clarity thing. It's just physiological needs right down the bottom there. So it needs like air and food and water and and, uh, rest, right? If we don't have those things, we just won't survive. We won't live. That's the idea. Uh, But notice that the next level up is safety. There's an acknowledgement here. Maslow's not a Christian, right? But there's an acknowledgement here that uh, all of us need to feel safe. Uh, We need to feel like we're protected, that we're secure. That's a deep need that every single human being has. And the question is, is it possible to fulfill that need? Is it actually possible to be secure, to be safe, to, to be protected? I read a blog during the week by a psychologist named William Berry. He's in the States. And he says this about the whole idea of security. He says, uh, I don't believe in security. I perceive security as an illusion. An illusion that human beings are comfortable with. An illusion that human beings like to delude themselves with until something shatters it. Right? Security is an illusion. Right? And in one sense, I think he's kind of right. right? But security is an illusion uh, in the sense that we tend to think of ourselves as being invincible. We're indestructible. We're kind of going to live forever. Nothing could ever possibly touch us. So, uh, for example, uh, in a simple way, you, you think that you're secure in your own home. And then you arrive home to discover that someone's broken in. Right? It kind of shatters just how secure you are. Or more intense, you know, I'm sure people felt they were secure having scones in that cafe at Port Arthur. But their illusion of security was shattered. People last year felt they were secure walking down Burke Street in the city. Then someone starts driving along the footpath. People on 9-11 felt they were secure going into work. I remember watching those planes fly into the building. We've got this need for security, this desire for security, but every now and then, uh, our illusion of security is shattered, at least in that sense. We're just not that secure. We're weak, we're fragile, we're we're incredibly vulnerable. In that sense, security is an illusion. But but what we're going to see today is that Christianity offers us more than that. Christianity offers us true security, ultimate security, security not just for now, but for eternity. Security, even in the face of suffering, even in the face of death. Christianity, that's my my big idea today, Christianity offers us complete security. Uh, before Before we kind of dive into that, I wanted to give you two reminders about the book of Revelation as a whole. Uh, so two reminders. The first is, you can see them there on the sermon outline if you've got that. Uh, the first is that we really have to read Revelation as cyclical, not chronological. I'll, I'll explain what I mean. Because uh, I guess when we read Revelation, it's really easy to, to get caught up with the timing of different events. Uh, it's not like we know nothing about timing. I'll give you a couple of things that we know timing about. Uh, for example, uh, most people agree uh, that Revelation describes events that are happening in the last days. 
Right? Most people agree with that. And we can actually pinpoint the beginning of the last days very precisely. Right? This is one date that uh, you can absolutely put on your timeline on your wall. Right? Uh, so here it is. Uh, if you look uh, in Acts chapter 2, uh, you don't have to look it up now. If you're a quick flicker, you can. Uh, but Acts chapter 2, verse 17, uh, Peter and the apostles, uh, they've received the Holy Spirit. Uh, and you might remember Peter explains what's going on, and he quotes from Joel chapter 3, verse 17, saying, uh, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see uh, visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, bo- servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those last days, and they will prophesy. But you see what Peter's saying? He's saying uh, the last days described in the book of Revelation began on that day when God poured out his spirit in about 33 AD. So if you you want to know uh, when the last days began, that's right it there. Put it on your calendar. That is the beginning of the last days, at least according to Peter. I'm going with the Apostle Peter rather than some guy on the internet. So so that's when the last days began. Uh, You can also be sure of the end of the last days. Not exactly when the end of the last days will happen, but what's going to bring about the end of the last days. It's when Jesus returns. That's going to wrap all things up. So the book of Revelation is about what's going to happen between these two points in the whole period of the last days, uh, between the pouring out of God's Spirit and Christ's return. Uh, But within that period of time, uh, the the content of Revelation is organized cyclically, not chronologically. uh, A few weeks back, if we can put up the next slide, uh, a few weeks back I put up this slide and it shows you the seven major divisions in the book of Revelation. uh, And you can see that it's structured around cycles of seven. Not all of it, but a lot of it. Seven churches, seals, trumpets, bowls. There are these cycles of seven all the way through. We're not supposed to read it chronologically, but cyclically. In fact, if you try to read it chronologically, you'll get very confused. For example, if at the end of chapter 6, a couple of weeks back when Paul was preaching, you might remember that with the opening of the first six seals, the earth was completely devastated. Lots of evil, lots of suffering, lots of harm on the earth. But here at the start of chapter 7, everything's fine on earth. It's like we've moved back in time to before the first of those seals was opened. And then at the end of chapter 7, I will see, we fast forward to a picture of what heaven's going to be like for Christians when Christ returns. But at the start of chapter 8, it's like we're back with the seven seals again, with the blowing of the trumpets, the first of the trumpets. If you try to read Revelation chronologically, you'll get all over the shop. It's not designed to be read like that. Right? We've got to read it cyclically. I'm not saying there's no sense of chronology. Clearly the book's heading towards a climax. We know that. Right? Christ, is going to, Christ is returning, the coming of God's kingdom, the, the new heavens and new earth. There, there's some chronology, but by and large, we're to read it cyclically. Right? So how do we put these, these different things together? Well, one writer said this. I think it's really helpful. He says, The unity of Revelation is not chronological but artistic like that of a musical theme uh, with different variations, each variation adding something new to the significance of the whole composition. Uh, I'm into music, so it resonated with me. It may not work for you. But uh, if you can imagine for a moment that that you're listening to a particular symphony, and the idea is that at the start, the composer introduces the main theme. 
Now they put it out there, and then throughout the symphony, they, they go through all sorts of different variations. They develop it. They repeat it. They, they look at that main theme from different perspectives uh, until finally the symphony reaches its climax. Right? That's the book of Revelation. That's what it's like. The main theme is introduced right at the start, and it's repeated over and over again in these different cycles, in different variations, until we reach the climax at the end. So we've got to read Revelation uh, cyclically, not chronologically. Uh, That leads to my second reminder, which is uh, that the main theme of Revelation is the gospel. The good news about who Christ is and what he's done. Revelation was not written to give you a timeline for your wall. Some people get caught up with this and they want to kind of nail down all the things on the chart. That's not the purpose of Revelation. Revelation was written to strengthen all Christians throughout history so that we would not only keep believing and persevering in believing the great truths of the gospel, but that we would proclaim the great truths of the gospel to the ends of the earth. In that sense, the New Testament's book ended in a way, right? The book of Acts, the start of the book of Acts, if you want to read Acts chapter 1 later on, a good thing to read, uh, the disciples say, can you tell us the time and place when you're going to restore the kingdom? And the angel's there, and the angel says, it's not for you to be concerned about times and places, just get on with being witnesses to the gospel, to the ends of the earth. Revelation's very similar. It's not for you to be concerned about times and places, it's your job to live faithfully as a Christian to suffer as a Christian, to proclaim the gospel of Christ to the ends of the earth. In that sense, the same message at both ends of the New Testament. So the main uh, theme of Revelation is the gospel, the great truths of the gospel. What what great truths of the gospel are we reminded of today? Uh, Well, you you might have got the message so far in the service, right? It's the truth that as Christians, uh, we are almost, uh, we are completely secure, We're almost certain to suffer, to be mocked, to be excluded. Uh, We might be killed for our faith. All that's in the book of Revelation. But despite all that, we are completely secure. So let's look at Revelation 7. Uh, In Revelation 7, there are two pictures of God's people. Uh, In verses 1 to 8, uh, there's the 144,000 who representing the 12 tribes of Israel. You got that when Jeremy read it, 12,000, 12,000, right? Uh, verses 9 to 17, we, we see the, the great multitude of people that can't be numbered from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Uh, there's a lot of debate, of course, about who's included in these groups. Uh, I can talk about all the different positions if you like, uh, but I'm convinced that these two groups are both pictures of all God's people throughout history. They're just looking at God's people at different times and from different perspectives. And they're both making that one central point that God's people are completely secure. So first, verses 1 to 8, we see that God's people are completely secure on earth. Have a look in verse 1. John sees this vision of four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. So so what are these angels holding back? They're holding back winds, we know that, but but what exactly are they? What do the winds represent? Uh, Well, in Zechariah chapter 6, Zechariah also sees a vision. Uh, Let me read some verses from Zechariah 6, from verse 1. Zechariah says, I I looked up again, and there before me were four chariots coming out from between two mountains, mountains of bronze. Uh, The first chariot had red horses, the second black, the third white, and the fourth dappled. 
All of them were powerful. Now, this vision with, with four different horses, that might ring a bell, right? But because a couple of weeks ago in Revelation chapter 6, John saw a vision with four different horses. You remember Paul preached about that, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as they're known in, in kind of pop culture, right? And so Zechariah also saw this vision with four horses. And, and in Zechariah 6 verse 4, uh, Zechariah asked the angel to explain what's going on with the horses. And in verse 5, the angel says, uh, these horses are the four spirits or winds of heaven going out from standing in the presence of the Lord to the whole world. You see that, right? The horses are kind of equated with the four winds. Four horses, four winds. That's the idea. So in Revelation 6, we saw Christ releasing those horses. You remember that? He's releasing them into the world. And just like in Zechariah 6, they're powerful horses. They're horses that bring a whole lot of evil and suffering across the world. But here in chapter 7, verse 1, these, uh, we've got these four angels who are holding back the winds. They're holding back the horses. Uh, so look in verse 3, another angel says, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. But in chapter 7, It's like we're zooming back to get a glimpse of what's going on in the spiritual realm before Christ opens up those six seals, before Christ releases the horses. And what we see here is that Christ did not permit those horses to be released until all of his people were completely secure. That's the point of the seal. You see the seal there, uh, the, the, the seal on our foreheads, right? Because in the old days, we don't do our seals that much these days, but in the old days, you'd put a hot wax seal on something. Uh, maybe it was a document or a, or a contract or a, a special letter. You'd, you'd put a seal on it as a sign that it belonged to you, that it was precious to you, that if someone messed with that document, they were answerable to you because it was yours. So this seal on God's people is a sign that they belong to him. They're precious to him. That's why they're completely secure. They're secure because uh, if you remember the vision of God in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, if if God's people are secure in, in the hand of that God, the God who sits on his throne at the center of the universe, who rules over everyone and everything, who created everyone, who sustains everyone, the God who holds the destiny of the entire world. Remember that the scroll is in his right hand. He holds every single human being in the palm of his hand. Who's going to stop that God from protecting his people? No one. Who can possibly do anything to his people that is outside of his will? No one. God's people are completely secure in the palm of his hands. So verses 1 to 8 show us that all God's people are completely secure on earth. Even in the midst of the suffering of chapter 6, they were sealed before that suffering even started. I say all God's people because you see the the term there is the servants of God. Seal the servants of God. That's not some special class of servants, right? Like pastors or something, right? It's just Christians. All Christians are servants. That's used throughout Revelation to refer to all Christians. And here those servants are pictured symbolically with this number 144,000. 
Oh, we see that again in chapter 14, verse 1. John says, uh, Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing uh, on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Right, So it's, it's 144,000 again. They're, they're marked out as belonging to God, uh, this time clearly with God's name on their foreheads. Right, well, once again, uh, likewise, chapters uh, 21 and 22 uh, you might remember the, the picture of the, the new city of Jerusalem in the new heavens and new earth. Uh, and it's absolutely full of multiples of 12. Uh, there are 12 gates on the city. Uh, the 12 gates are made of 12 pearls. And on the gates are written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, the walls of the city are how many cubits high? Guess. 144. Right, 144. It could have been 144,000, I suppose, but that's pretty high. Uh, anyway, so uh, 144 cubits high. The city has 12 foundation stones, and on the stones are written the names of the 12 apostles. This is the picture of the new Jerusalem. The point is that the 144,000 in verses 1 to 8 is not just some small section of God's people. Not just physical Jews, for example. That's what some people think. It's not just that. This is all God's people. It's everyone who is going to end up in the new Jerusalem. Everyone who's going to end up in the new heavens and new earth. But why are they grouped together in these 12 groups of 12,000? Why? Uh, you might remember that in the Old Testament, God's people Israel, uh, you, even if you're a bit hazy on the story, uh, they were rescued from Egypt by the blood uh, of a sacrificial lamb. Right, so the, the lamb uh, took the judgment that they deserved for their sin, for their disobedience. Uh, but when God gathered the 12 tribes of Israel at Mount Sinai, uh, they still had to go through the wilderness. Right, there was lots of hardship. There were even battles before they entered the promised land and enjoyed the fullness of what God had promised them. Now let's come back to the book of Revelation. In chapter 5, we saw that God's people, the church, are the kind of fulfillment of Israel, are also rescued by the blood of a lamb, by Christ, who's the ultimate lamb of God, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Uh, but just like Israel, even though we've been gathered together as God's people, uh, we've still got to go through the wilderness of this world. It's hard. There's suffering. There's hardships. Uh, there's all sorts of battles before we reach our promised land. The new heavens and new earth, where we enjoy the full blessings of what God's promised us. So here, John sees God's people uh, like an army. That's the point of what's going on here. There are 12 regiments of 12,000 troops. They've been rescued by God. They've been gathered by God. They're secure in, in God's hands. But now they've got to face the battles of this world. So they're lined up in, in 12 regiments. And it's going to be a hard battle. We saw back in chapter 6 that uh, it's a part of Christ's plan that his people would suffer, be persecuted, maybe, maybe even be killed for their faith. Chapter 6, verse 9, the, the Christians who've already been killed for their faith cry out saying, How long, O Lord? And in verse 9, Christ says, Just wait a little longer until the full number of your fellow servants, your brothers and sisters, are killed, just as you have been. If you want to know more about that, you should listen to Paul's sermon from, from a couple of weeks back, right? 
but, but in short, God's telling his people in the first century, he, he's telling us uh, in the 21st century that his plan is that we would suffer, that we would face battles, that, that we might even be killed for the sake of following Christ. We're following the lamb who was slain. We can't expect much more. And that might seem extreme, uh, but actually, uh, it's words like this that have strengthened uh, that strengthened the early church. As many of them were tortured, they were they were crucified, they were fed to lions or bears, they were burnt alive for the sake of their faith. It's words like this that strengthen Christians around the world today, where on a daily basis Christians are imprisoned and tortured and executed for their faith. And the obvious question is, how is that security? You know, God sealed his people up. Well, that's great. What good is it if you're going to be crucified? Right? How is that security? Well, it's security because God never promised us physical security. He promised us spiritual security. He promised that we'd always be sheltered from his anger, that we'd be protected from his judgment, that, that we'd be secure in his love. He urges us to prioritize that security over physical security. So in Matthew 10, Jesus says, Do not be afraid of those who can merely kill the body but can't kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Sort out which security you want. We all long for security, but we mustn't settle for some cheap imitation, right? For financial security or identity security or even for physical security, Jesus is saying. Those are just temporary and can be taken away in a moment. If you're serious about security, Jesus says, you've got to embrace the security of knowing him. That's where real security is found. In knowing him, that it's in knowing him that you'll always be sheltered from God's anger, but because he already bore God's anger on the cross. There's no anger left for you. It's in knowing him that you'll be protected from God's judgment because he bore God's judgment on the cross. It's in knowing him that you'll be completely secure in God's love. And that's why down in verse 14, Revelation 7, verse 14, are the Christians in heaven are clothed in white. But it's because on the cross, Christ was clothed in their filth, in their sin. He experienced the, the, the terror of God's judgment that they deserve, that we deserve. And so that by faith in him, they could be clothed in his perfection, his white, his purity, his unblemished life. And experience the security of God's love that, uh, that Christ deserved, that they didn't deserve. So, so in Romans 8, Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
And the, the message of Revelation, uh, the message of the New Testament is that if you live as a Christian, you're almost certain to suffer. To experience hardship and trouble and persecution, as Paul's outlining here, you might even experience the sword. Uh, but the other message that is really clear is that none of that can separate you from the love of God. None of it. Whatever happens in your life on earth, you are completely secure. That's what God wanted those Christians in the first century to know as they faced massive physical persecution. And it's what he wants us to know. We're completely secure. And we'll be completely secure in heaven. I wonder if you remember how Revelation 6 ended. I'll read from verse 15. Revelation 6 verse 15, just to kind of refresh. Uh, It says, uh, The kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among rocks of the mountains. And they called to the mountains and rocks, saying, Fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? The point at the end of Revelation 6 is, who could possibly stand before the throne of this holy God? We'll look in Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing where? Standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Right? Because of Christ and what he's done, these Christians can stand before the throne of a holy God and fear no anger, fear no judgment at all, completely secure in his love. So as Christians, we're completely secure on earth, even in the midst of suffering. And at the end of our suffering, right? look at verse 14. At the end of our suffering, when we've come out of this great tribulation, we'll be completely secure in heaven. Uh, once again, some people want to say that great tribulation, it, it refers to a, a specific period of time right before Christ returns. Uh, only a select few Christians are going to be alive at that time. I just don't buy it, right? Every other time in Revelation, the word tribulation is used. It's used to refer to all suffering that all Christians might experience throughout history. This is not a select tribulation. It's the tribulation of the whole period of the last days. So the picture here is of all God's people who have fought the good fight, they've endured to the end, and now they're standing before the throne of God completely secure in his love. So once again, in chapter 7, it's like uh, at home uh, when Gabby and I are watching TV, I've got control of the pause button. I've got the remotes. I like to be in control. And uh, and so uh, when, you know, at an appropriate moment, pause, you know, toilet breaks. All right, so what we're doing here is that uh, we're pressing the pause button between the sixth and seventh seal. And we're doing that so that we can zoom back and see the suffering of chapter 6 from the perspective of God's people. The big question at the end of chapter 6, will God's people stand firm in the midst of suffering? Will they survive? How could they possibly? The answer of chapter 7 is yes. Yes, they will. 
Verses 1 to 8 show us that God's people are completely secure on earth. God sealed them even before the suffering began. And verses 9 to 17 show us that one day God's people will be completely secure in heaven, praising his name forever. Uh, One last thing. Well, a couple of things. But uh, Why is it that in verses 1 to 8, God's people are described as 144,000 from Israel? And in verses 9 to 17, they're described as this multitude from every nation that no one can count. Why, why describe the same group of people in two very different ways? Well, the answer is in chapter 5, in how Jesus is described there. So you might remember back in chapter 5, Jesus was described in two ways. He was first uh, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And we saw when we looked at that, and we looked at Genesis 49, that that means Jesus is the Messiah. He's God's, he's God's king who's come to establish and, and rule over God's kingdom. And he's God's king who originates from the tribe of Judah. That's where his kind of descendants, his ancestors go. So in verses 1 to 8, God's people are described as the descendants of Israel. Uh, but where do they originate from? Look at verse 5. They originate from the tribe of Judah. That's the first tribe listed. This is the point. This is the people of Christ. The people who have gathered around Christ, uh, God's King, the Messiah, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. I mean, in chapter 5, Christ is also described as the Lamb of God. The one whose death on the cross purchased people from every nation. Uh, so that's verses 9 to 17. God's people described as a multitude from every nation. People who've been bored uh, by Jesus' death on the cross, giving praise to Christ, the Lamb of God, uh, declaring his victory. And notice verse 15. He who sits on the throne, uh, that's God, uh, God the Father, but we saw earlier there's also Christ, the, the, the Lamb of God. He who sits on the throne will shelter them uh, with his presence. Shelter them with his presence. At the end of chapter 6, humanity preferred to be crushed by a rock than face the presence of Christ. And here God's people are sheltered in the presence of Christ. They're enjoying his presence. They're, They're delighting in his presence. Because being in his presence doesn't just mean they're completely secure, but it also means they're completely satisfied. You see that at the end of the chapter. Verse 16, uh, when we're finally sheltered in Christ's presence, we'll never again be thirsty or hungry. Every appetite, every desire you have will be fulfilled. Because in verse 17, Christ, the Lamb of God, this is a bit of a kind of mind bend, right? But Christ, the Lamb of God, is also our shepherd, in this vision, the great shepherd, the good shepherd, the shepherd who will lead us to springs of living water. So as God's people, we, we won't just be completely secure in heaven, we'll be completely satisfied in heaven. And of course, some of you might think, perhaps it'd be wonderful if that was true. Would it be great? I mean, really, when it comes down to it, who wouldn't want to be completely secure and satisfied forever? That's a pretty good sell. If, if you choice of products, that's not a bad product to have on offer. But it'd be wonderful if it was true, but it can't be true, right? It's just, it's just a fairy tale. And I get that. I get that this seems too good to be true. But it's actually not. 
Well, it's not, but because I'm persuaded by the evidence. You can read Acts 2 later on. But I'm persuaded by the evidence, as Peter says in Acts chapter 2, that when Christ suffered and died, his father did not abandon him to the grave. By quoting from Psalm 16, Peter says that, that God the Father showed Christ the path to life so that now he lives and reigns and rules and he's filled with endless joy in his Father's presence. So if you trust in Christ, you see, if you're in Christ, if you're sheltered in Christ, God will not abandon you to the grave. That's the point of Revelation 7. He'll show you the path to life. He'll raise you up and you will be filled with endless joy and pleasure and satisfaction in the presence of God. You see, all of us long for security. We long for lasting security, complete security. We're really desperate for it. But the only way we can find it is in knowing Christ. It's only in knowing Christ that you'll be completely secure on earth. And no matter how much you suffer, no matter how much you suffer, you belong to God, you're, you're, you're precious to Him, you're loved by Him. And why would it be important to you to be loved? No, it is important to be loved and to be precious to other people. But it's much more important to be loved by and, and precious to the Creator of the universe. You're completely secure in His hand, and it's only in knowing Christ that you'll be completely secure forever. Filled with endless joy in God's presence. Uh, let's pray. Our Lord God, your word does warn us uh, that today, if we hear your voice, we should not harden our hearts. As we've gathered today, Father, uh, we trust that we have heard your voice. And we pray that you would help us, uh, enable us to not harden our hearts. Help us, God, to turn away from other places where we're tempted to find security, other people or things. Help us to turn towards Christ in faith and find our uh, ultimate security in knowing him, uh, both now and forever. Amen.